Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. In continuing my crypto native journey, I found myself wanting to dive deeper into the fundamentals of the infrastructure underpinning Web3 and how those are shaping up to support the next wave of user adoption. In particular, I wanted to survey the main blockchain development threats going on at the moment to understand the path towards better scalability, abstraction, and interoperability. In truth, the blockchain infrastructure space continues to be a highly fragmented world with many competing views and opinions, which requires a significant amount of information gathering and knowledge sharing. It also seems that we're definitely at an inflection point prompted by the market turmoil of 2022 and a recentering towards the technology as an enabler of value creation rather than speculation. In terms of experts in the space, I couldn't think of a better guest than Arian Shikalian, who is currently the head of research and an investor at CMT Digital, the blockchain venture capital arm of global trading firm CMT Group. Arian began his career at Accenture, where he worked as a business analyst prior to going to college and was first exposed to blockchain technology as part of the Accenture Horizon Scholarship Program. In 2017, he joined the Blockchain Research Institute as an associate, where he worked on blockchain research under the leadership of Don Tapscott, one of the world's leading authorities on the impact of technology on business and society. Whilst at Columbia University, Arian also co-founded the Columbia Blockchain Club. We had a lovely chat with Arian, covering a wide range of personal and technical topics, including his athletic pursuits as a member of the varsity lightweight rowing team and his Persian heritage. And relevant to our initial goal, we were able to dive into various blockchain project roadmaps and how they differ in their approach to delivering functionality and interoperability relevant to long-term adoption. Arian holds a degree from Columbia University in the city of New York with a major in economics and mathematics, specializing in game theory and cryptography. He works and lives in Chicago and enjoys tinkering with protocols, computer hardware, and pretty much anything else he can get his hands on in his free time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I was born in Iran, actually, in Tehran. And we fled the country when I was about four years old. and We moved to the UK. So I spent kind of the early stages of my life as an asylum seeker in the UK. And from a young age, I really gravitated towards mathematics. And eventually, when I figured it out, physics as well. I think they were subjects that I felt like explained things in the world to me. And as a child, I was always looking for explanations to things I was always kind of tinkering with things, trying to take them apart, figure out how they worked, and really understand the functionality of a sharpener, for example. So growing up, I really gravitated towards those more quantitative STEM subjects, so the mathematics. And yeah, it wasn't until high school. So I, we, my family moved to the south of England. I grew up in the north for the beginning, and then we moved to the south, and I... Uh, got a scholarship to go to a boarding school down in Dorset, a school called Canford School. And that's where I took maths and further maths and physics and economics at the A-level stage and was kind of really intrigued by the analytical approach of those subjects. Outside of my academic kind of activities, I started to gain a bit of a passion for rowing, the sport. At Canford had a rowing team and I started participating. And I think that's where my competitive nature really first reared its head. I uh, started rowing on the team and eventually made the national team in the UK and rowed at what's called the Coupe de la Jeunesse, which is like a youth cup in Europe. And yeah, eventually came over to the States and took it from there. 
That's amazing. That's a, a great story. And, and I think what I like about this is it sets the tone, as you said, right? You know, I think you do have a competitive bent and it's expressed itself both in athletics and rowing in your case, as well as what you've gravitated towards, you know, professionally. You know, I find your background very interesting. My, my mother was born in Tehran, actually, so I have to share that. And it's interesting to see your early journey. Obviously, a lot of my guests tended during their upbringing in high school and college to gravitate towards STEM and more quantitative sciences. So it all makes sense as to you know, where do you end up going. How did you end up in New York and at Columbia University? And what was then the transition into started to develop an affinity around decentralization technology and blockchain? Yeah. So I originally graduated high school in 2015, 2016 time. And at the time I was still rowing and I wanted to take another year to row as part of the national team. And so I moved to London and worked for Accenture, the consulting firm. They have a scheme in the UK called the Horizon Scheme. I'm not sure if they're still running it actually, but they would take gap year students. In my year, it was about six of us and they would introduce us as a normal graduate analyst class. So I worked as a business analyst for two financial corporations within the UK as part of Accenture. And that's when I first discovered blockchain. They were using blockchain in a strategy case. And I discovered the technology and started digging into Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And I wanted to study mathematics. And at the time I was getting recruited by US universities for rowing. And so looked at Columbia's mathematics program really appealed to me. And I liked the idea of being in New York City. And yeah, so I went for Columbia, joined and moved over to the States. But it was really the mathematical approach that interested me. And so I started looking at kind of the early works that were going on back in 2016, 2017. And ultimately, that led to me joining the Blockchain Research Institute. Got it. Understood. So just on a personal level, it sounds like your high school experience was very almost like Harry Potter-esque. I mean, at least that's the way it sounds. And suddenly you're in New York now. And so how is rowing, you know, going from Coupe de la Jeunesse to, you know, rowing in New York? if at all, right? I mean, how much time were you able to dedicate to rowing then? Yeah, I was actually dedicating a lot of time. We were doing about two, three hours of training a day. We would train in New Jersey at a lake called Overpeck Park. It was essentially a landfill that was filled in. So we raced there because the water was still, there was no tide. Problem with the Hudson is that it got quite a lot of chop and flow. So it's doesn't make for very stable rowing conditions. I think the time management was something that I had already been balancing in high school, the boarding school kind of had a pretty rigorous schedule. And so I was relatively used to managing my time where it did become more difficult. And ultimately why I had to stop was as I was transitioning towards thinking about working more and more and dedicating more and more of my time to what I wanted to be the foundations of my career, I found that I ultimately just didn't have the time to be able to allocate to rowing anymore. And I had to make that decision of, well, do I want to pursue rowing for a career or blockchain and ultimately decided blockchain? So as you develop your professional DNA, right, you start crafting it, you start having an idea of what it is that sort of the, the grown up version of you wants to do. What is that vision exactly? Because now you sit in a very interesting seat, an vantage point where you're getting to research the space that you're in you're also helping make investment decisions that have consequences and potential unlimited upside. So 
What do you think prepared you during those years? You talked about the competitive nature, but a lot of what you do right now is research-oriented. It's investment, it's decision-making, it's investment recommendations. How do you go from you know, being a very well, a skilled mathematician in school and a competitive rower to becoming an investor ultimately? Yeah, I think it ultimately within this field, everyone's competitive. It's the competitive nature doesn't really make any individual stand out from what I've seen. What I think really prepared me was that mentality that I always had of needing to know the answers to things and the how things would function in the back end, really. And that inquisitive nature, I think I attribute a lot of the process of getting to here to that inquisitive nature. So it's really a passion for wanting to get to the solution, wanting to get to the right answer. Is that correct? I would say, yeah. I mean, not necessarily even the right, but just developing a full understanding of what's actually going on. And it's something that in mathematics, I found when you're learning a new function or a primitive or looking at a historic problem, it's not just the solution. It's how you get to the solution, the mathematical proof. And I find a lot of the discovery within research, especially with regards to emerging protocols, emerging primitives, to be more or less structured the same in terms of discovery. You get the same sort of patterns of moving through the problem statement, looking at different approaches that have been taken before, looking at ultimately what the ideal solution should look like and kind of evaluating it from the inside out. And obviously being able to substantiate it with rigorous analysis, rigorous computations is obviously helpful, right? You're not just winging it. It's not hand-wavy. It's scientific in nature. As you said, although the outcomes are highly probabilistic in nature, how you arrive at your investment recommendations is subject to a thorough process. How does one score a seat such as the one you're in? I mean, what was the path to actually securing that and, and being in a position where you do have influence over how capital is being deployed across the investment lifecycle? Well, ultimately, I think what really helped me get to this seat was the research background. I think from my earliest involvement in blockchain, it was always from a research perspective. And it's an angle that I've always tried to maintain. I always try to look at things. Ultimately, when I invest personally in my personal account, or if I'm investing through CMT, I'm looking at what's kind of the research or the background primitive that has enabled this step forward. And by staying close to the updates and developments that are going on at the research level, I found that it helped me really develop my own thesis and then spot the applications and be able to then justify why I think a certain application would be better positioned or be leveraging the technology in a way that would be more scalable than another. And I think ultimately that sort of approach we find is relevant within the investment decision process. And I think every team needs someone who likes getting down to the nitty gritty and staying up with those research developments. And I think ultimately that I just chose to be that person. So is it fair to say, I mean this in the most narrative and respectful ways, it's fair to say that you relish being in a position of being the expert that your colleagues maybe will turn to if they need to dive a little bit deeper into the topic? Well, I'd like to 
be well read enough in the topics so that I can provide that. But I really don't like speaking on things that I'm not knowledgeable on. And so I try to make it a point to read up on developments as soon as they occur. I mean, if I see mentions of something that I'm not familiar with, I'll immediately just do a deep dive on it. That's great because I find that too many people, and it's a function also of like limited time to to allocate, but also just a question of discipline. And I think what I'm reading here, and maybe I'm extrapolating, but I'm reading is that your rigor in training and discipline, whether it was academic or athletic, really has honed in your personality and being very disciplined as to how you approach your topics, right? And not letting any stones on turn, going the distance in terms of putting in the work to try to really understand. And when it comes to generating alpha, that's a, a very important prerequisite. The reason we're talking about all this is because this is not my regular podcast interview in the topics we're going to cover today. We're going to go and rely on your expertise and your knowledge of blockchain technology to talk about it, to talk about the blockchain roadmap moving forward, to talk about standards, interoperability, computational architecture, all these topics. Whereas I tend to focus more on an entrepreneurial journey here we're actually going to dive in more detail into the technology, but we're going to do so thanks to you in a way that our guests can understand it at a high level. And I think your background really lends itself really well to it. So thank you for giving us a little bit of background as to what led you to be in, in the sit you're in. So can you talk to us a little bit about what is the state of blockchain engineering and development? Like what are the different threads at present out there? in the engineering space, when we look at infrastructure? Well, I mean, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of different angles that we can approach the threads topic with. When we're looking at blockchain development, it's typically come in stages. We've had one development that's enabled a bunch of others historically. If we think back to the history of Bitcoin, initially it was only used for transacting physical value that was determined in Bitcoin itself. Obviously, with the advent of Ethereum and smart contracts, a whole plethora of use cases was opened up. When we look at the code base of Ethereum itself for smart contracts, we're looking at Solidity code. And now, so back in 2015, 2016, Ethereum makes an entrance and, and now we're starting to really realize the full variety of code bases that we have out there. We've got Solidity, Golang, Cosmwasm, Rust, Move, which is an implementation of Rust. It's like the development in the core code has moved on significantly from Solidity. And so that's one branch of the blockchain roadmap that has been kind of playing out in the background. Then we've got other branches of what's each blockchain's approach to something like scalability or what's each blockchain's approach to something like smart contract management or communication. And all of these individual topics have their own roadmaps that have been developing alongside each other, kind of like a decentralized acyclical graph DAG model that we see in some consensus mechanisms. So I think we're starting to hit the point of maturity on some pieces of infrastructure that we hadn't really had the ability to realize before. And that in and of itself opens up opportunities that are really hard to anticipate. And I think 
in terms of the blockchain lifecycle, we're at a point where the infrastructure is starting to become developed to a point where we can develop applications that we wouldn't have been able to years ago. But the trade-off there is that we don't necessarily know how people are going to utilize the advancements that we've seen in the past few years. And it's interesting because we've fundamentally gone, and this has been a a lengthy process, but we've gone from a non-programmable environment to one that is highly programmable. And to your point, we now have precedence, whether it was the inception of Ethereum and now all the children and grandchildren of these efforts, teams that have gone out and said, well, we'd like to solve this problem a little bit better. We'd like to solve this specific problem a little bit better. And trying to make some bets at the infrastructure level as to what this could enable. And people always come back and they refer to crypto really as being a solution in search of a problem. But the reality is people forget before the internet and Web2 was really able to take off, you needed infrastructure to be in place. And the reality is it took longer than people thought to get to that stage. And it also requires there to be mature development environments at the application level, such as the ones you described, right? The different execution environments at the programmatic layer in order to enable application development. If you don't have these, well, you can't do anything. So I think that's an important distinction and difference even compared to the last crypto winter, right? Absolutely. And I think the point that people make, crypto sometimes seems like it's a solution in search of a problem. I agree with that point, but not generally. I mean, you could have said the same thing about simple mail transfer protocol when it came out. It's just in need of a solution. Who has a computer that's thousands of dollars readily available to receive their mail? And it's something that the general public would have found hard to grasp at the time, purely because there are so many barriers in the way of that general adoption. And it's only through the long, arduous process of enabling the standardization of passing messages on the web and the use of SMTP before we really realized the benefits of using email and the improvement in the user experience of life. So when you think about that and taking a view that we are already and have seen considerable adoption, both within the developed communities, the applications being tried and tested, as well as finished products. There are applications and services out there that are commercial, that have very, very mature user bases. And although they're still small in the grand scheme of things, they're starting to build up. Can you give us an idea of adoption and consumption? In particular, as a researcher, what are the types of metrics one should use to understand adoption of blockchain technology? Yeah, I think it's something that's ever-changing with the standards of blockchain communication and interaction. I think if you were to measure activity back in 2014, 15, you'd be pretty much entirely looking at Bitcoin. Now, if you were measuring activity through 2017 and 18, you'd be entirely looking at ICO results and which ICO projects had the highest sales. But now through DeFi and DeFi Summer that we experienced a few years ago, we're starting to look at other metrics like TVL, total value locked. I think this is something that will continue to change. I am of the opinion that it will move 
less towards necessarily looking at capital allocation and potentially looking at things like communication as a starting point for adoption measurement and analysis of adoption. How often are various blockchains communicating with each other? How often are, how many wallets exist and daily interact on each blockchain? One of the dashboards that I really like using is a dashboard called Artemis, actually, A-R-T-E-M-I-S. And you look at the dashboard and it shows you you know, daily active addresses across all of the chains, um, increases in daily active addresses versus market cap. And it starts to separate developer activity, user activity, packets that are sent for verification versus packets that are actively sent by users. And I think as the blockchain environment further develops, it's important to keep in mind that adoption is not necessarily only associated with capital flows. No, I think you make a great point here. And which brings me to my next point where we discuss, in your opinions, what should the next bull cycle be based on? I'll give you, my opinion is very aligned with the statement that you just made, which is ultimately in terms of value creation, we've only looked at a subset of what can be enabled, right? And of course, things veer towards the highly speculative, but also very much banking-like type applications and services, which is why there's been an overemphasis on deposits. And whoever was winning, quote unquote, the game was attracting the highest levels of deposits as one metric, right? But if we go back to the core infrastructure, it's almost like we have to put our IT hats on and look at lower level metrics in terms of execution, again, in terms of storage, in terms of consensus, communication, as you said, which is very important as we discuss interoperability as well. It's almost like you're looking at these different islands and economic subsystems, and you want to understand how they function internally from within and looking and essentially coming up with a scheme of metrics that allows you to track them, but also how they interact together. So that's my view. What is your view on like what the next bull cycle should be based on? Yeah, I agree with you as well, Maxime. I think it should be based on those. But also, if we look at historical bull cycles, they've been largely comprised of participants that are already in the space and that latch onto a narrative or an idea that they see as having a future within the space and as a result piling resources into it. And is that necessarily reflective of the value that that advancement or that narrative provides at that given moment in time? Probably not. But when we look at the stages of these cycles and the people who have been attracted to them. In the last cycle, we saw that the mainstream media coverage of blockchain and crypto really exploded for one of the first times. I mean, we'd always see upticks. We saw it in 2013. We saw it in 2016, 17. But I don't think it really matched what we saw in this last bull cycle. And so now that the general public and non-crypto based companies have been exposed to the technology and have had a few years to develop procedures, research, application research for potential legacy infrastructure stacks that the technology could replace. I would like to see the next bull market really be spurred on by the real world adoption of this technology. And that may be bringing real world assets on chain, that may be 
issuing tickets in the real world on as NFTs that maybe all of them, all of the use cases that we've spoken about, all of the narratives that we've seen. But as a ecosystem, we really need to expand and onboard users that can benefit from the use of this technology. And for that to happen, we need standards to be recognized. We need structures that are agreed upon to be adopted and we need everyone to be on the same page. So you're thinking an opinion that maybe the development is still being hindered in part by infrastructure level issues. Is that sort of a fair read of what you just mentioned? Yeah, I think so. I think the infrastructure is getting there, but it's by no means perfect. So in other words, there are two angles to this. And you and I have talked about this in the past. Obviously, the user experience trying to really not forego and throw away decades of an understanding of what an online interactive digital experience should be. And, you know, we've talked about onboarding, for example, and the fact that it really lacks in the user interfaces is the user interactions. But there's still, and and we're going to talk a lot about infrastructure, there are still a lot of things that need to be figured out. The good news is you look at teams every day, you survey the landscape, there is a lot going on there. And there are certainly people out there trying to solve for that. So one of the things that's happened is, you know, when you have two worlds, one is the application world and one is infrastructure world. And so when the application world is trying to solve things that are not necessarily dealt with at the lower level of the infrastructure, and this has happened time and again in the history of software, you know, as things become more obvious and features become more obvious and necessary and sometimes need actually higher performance, they get built literally sometimes down into the hardware to achieve better levels of performance and and if they become sort of an essential function. So we've seen many developments at the application level that are trying to solve for shortcomings at the lower level. I mean, fundamentally, if you think about layer two, parts of it are trying to solve for that. Do you see a trend towards push down to refer to it of functionality into the lower levels of the blockchain stack? I think a push down to the lower levels where it makes sense from an incentive perspective. Blockchains are structured around this idea of distributing through an incentivization. We see it at the consensus level. I mean, validators are rewarded for the security and the continuation of chains. And so, and consensus. So there is a very clear incentive model at the lower level to enable the continuation of consensus. Now, that incentive scheme may exist most efficiently at the application level. If that is the case, then it should absolutely remain at the application level. But if it's solving for a problem, I mean, I call these the common access good infrastructure pieces. If it's a common access good where by it fails under the tragedy of the commons and people should be using it and not be willing to pay for it, then I do believe that that should exist at the infrastructure level, at that lower level, because ultimately it's what enables the best execution, best user experience and and best standards for development. Yeah, it ties into the need for standards and and interoperability, right? If we have this notion of common access goods, which I really like, I like you coining that and referring to it as such, you need people to agree on what those are and their representation and implementation in various implementations of the stack. So there are obviously competing philosophies out there. And 
We have, say, start with the Bitcoin world, where it is very much a visioned where the purists look at the core layer one infrastructure as being truthful to the original ethos of decentralization, despite some of its shortcomings when it comes to developing a vibrant programmatic environment on it. And there's definitely efforts to build on top of it at the layer two that we've seen. You have other competing philosophies that are much more distributed in their vision. What are the trade-offs there, in your opinion? Yeah, I think the trade-offs, I mean, if we're comparing directly with scaling, let's take the scaling as a case study. We've got the one approach, which is let's do roll-ups. We can roll up the transactions, save block space on the base layer and have them execute on some other layer, which periodically submits the state changes back to the layer one. Now that's one approach. Another approach is sharding. Well, instead of having all of the transactions go through one validator set, let's split up the validator sets into these multiple groups and give them a smaller subset of transactions that each of the groups need to worry about. That's another approach. Now, the effectiveness of those two approaches against each other, I don't think are realized until they're pushed to the limits and they're very case specific in terms of functionality. So for Ethereum, as an example, I think the security assumption of it or the security model of Ethereum is super important. And that's kind of how they base their scaling model off of. Now that comes with the issues that we're starting to see with optimistic rollups and zero knowledge proof rollups compared to each other. Well, optimistic rollups have the issue of the fraud proofs submission back to the layer one. How do you verify the correctness of the state changes that are being fed back to the layer one? And then the zero knowledge environment approach, well, that's got far more computational load to manage. And how do you then approach the ZK EVM topic, and we've found the ZK EVM to be quite a difficult challenge. And so the various approaches, I think, are just representative of each of the different chains' outlook on their own future. And I think that's useful for applications when deciding ultimately on which infrastructure stack they want to reside. So you're saying that, in your opinion, and that ties into your investor mandate, the the way you envision this playing out is there will be a heterogeneous environment where certain types of application developers will gravitate towards certain types of ecosystems. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. And so, again, this brings to the fore the need and the notion of standards and interoperability. What do you think are the necessary catalysts for that? Yeah, well, I think there's one thing that we have in place already, and it's kind of one of the main largest hurdles for adoption. It's been in place forever, and it's the fact that blockchains are essentially just large state machines that track state changes and introduces this common ground or this common data point that each of the various blockchains can use to communicate with each other. And that's more or less how it's currently structured. You've got relayers that pass messages from one blockchain, or I guess you start with an observation on one blockchain, an oracle, or some observer picks up an event or a state change happens. You've then got relayers who relay that message from one blockchain to another. And then you've got light clients and a tester that verifies the validity of the message that was passed and whether it's true. Now, that 
has been enabled by the common data point of state changes. Now, when we look to the future and to the future of interoperability, well, how do we make it more efficient? And that requires far more coordination and far more participation in these standards. And right now, I think that's one of the segments of the market that is fragmented. There's so many different approaches to standards for communication. I mean, you've got IBC across tenement-based chains, which is the inter-blockchain protocol, essentially a state channel type solution for communication between two trusted parties. Once a channel is opened up, that channel is trusted and enables essentially free communication. Now that can only occur because of the trusted setup of IBC. Now, Ethereum takes a different approach. They, they haven't taken the IBC approach. You look at Polkadot, their approach, it's pretty similar to IBC XCM. I think we need to decide the standards and then from there, the interoperability will flourish. And you think about some competing philosophies versus IBC, like Chainlink is trying to push their own, obviously very sort of Chainlink-centered approach to trying to solve for interoperability. And it's heavily reliant on something that looks a lot like you know, a centralized approach that's solving interoperability in the decentralization context. Do you have any views on that? And do you think that ultimately something more along the lines of IBC will emerge? What is your take on that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting discussion point because Chainlink, I don't think we should we can undermine how much Chainlink enables. I mean, so many applications, the majority of applications have a dependency on Chainlink at some point with regards to data, especially if they're cross-chain. Now, I think the reason that that is because to have the high fidelity data streams, you can't really have it on blockchains right now because they're ultimately going to be restricted by the consensus of the block propagation. And so it's it's more efficient, it's cheaper, and it makes sense to conduct the data feed effort at the off-chain level. Now, do I think it should continue at the off-chain level or do I think it should be brought on-chain? I don't think the answer necessarily needs to be one or the other. I think if we look at blockchain development, it's been a very cryptographic centric approach and blockchain itself the consensus is a cryptographic approach we can use cryptographic approaches and ensure validity without necessarily being fully on chain or fully off chain so to speak you can have an off chain merkle tree structure that can be referred to on chain but doesn't actually itself reside on chain so i think it's important to bear in mind the advantages of on-chain versus off-chain structures, but also bear in mind the ethos of the ecosystem and the dependencies and the proofs that applications and the application layer like to have when interacting with dependencies. Makes sense. And thanks for helping us understand and walking us through this, because I do believe it's important as we look at the future and we look at what that might look like, that people understand exactly what's at stake and what are the different paths that are being pursued to solve for this. So switching a little bit, you've talked about those common access goods. What is a list of, let's say, top such common access goods that you'd like to see the industry converge on and start building in the base layers? Yeah, I think there's a few things. But generally, I think it's important to remember that the common access goods should be things that people 
need to utilize but aren't willing to pay for. And it's like the classic economics 101 class where we take it back down to social structures and think of things like flood defenses, army services, air quality control, things that ultimately have a beneficial effect on society. But there's no clear incentive for anyone to foot the bill. And I think that applies across the board, and we can apply that same approach to crypto. When we're looking at the world outside and what problems we are solving for in the real world within blockchain environments, I think it's important to bear in mind what standards people currently have and what they are willing to pay for and what they're not willing to pay for. I think a prime example of this is something like name services. Like when you're born, you don't pay, I mean, maybe you pay the hospital, but you don't pay to have your name you don't pay throughout life to have your identity. I think that's something that people expect. And we are willing to mint NFTs that showcase our names. But would the general public or should the general public, they should probably be onboarded with a name that they feel comfortable sharing in interactions with people. And if we look at a good case study of this is, is near as a blockchain. And I think I do believe that they've implemented some of the common access goods that I think should exist at that protocol level, at the protocol level. They've implemented name services on top of your public key. I mean, when I'm interacting with my near wallet, it's only really my public key is my name services. And I didn't pay for that. I signed up for that when I created my near wallet. And it's things like that, things like perhaps when you're starting out base indexing services, base querying services that would enable you to interact with other applications on the chain. I think those that general statement of things that people want to use, should use, and are beneficial to society or to the ecosystem, but perhaps they're not in a position where they can pay for, should pay for, or necessarily want to pay for. Makes sense. And that's a good way to sort of isolate and distinguish it from other value-add services that may not be as essential. And I do hope that as we continue forward, there is more and more agreement and understanding around the fact that these common access goods should not be a commercial differentiator. They should be about fostering adoption and creating a baseline sort of unifier for what is the baseline experience, both from a developer, an application developer, and a service user at the end of the day? Because I think that's very important. I think the commercial race to try and commercialize things that we know ultimately will not will be free, essentially, is, I think, a hindrance to adoption, right? I think people should come to the realization that adoption is more important, right, at the end of the day. And so through volume and scale, will very much make up for and much more in multiples of what we're trying to generate right now by commercializing things that are, you know, very basic in nature, I would say. You know, today, if you think about the best environments, let's say if someone was going and graduating or being in school right now and studying computer science with a focus on blockchain technology, where should they, they focus on and what are the things that are attractive right now in terms of making some early bets as to which development environments they're going to focus their attention on. I think especially with computer science students there's definitely a te there's a language barrier not I mean in the sense that languages that they know I think that's one of the reasons that we moved away from solidity that's one of the struggles of 
a project like Starkware where they're trying to convince developers to learn Cairo. And so to some extent, I think we'll see a movement towards, especially from developers that are entering the ecosystem, towards chains that they feel comfortable developing on. And I think Rust is one of those. I think Go is another one of those that Web2 developers would feel generally more comfortable developing in. Now, as for the future in the long run, I think ultimately we'll see a settling of applications on infrastructure levels or on chains that make the most sense for them. And we're already starting to see it with the advancement of specialized chains, something like Flow for NFTs uh, by Dapper Labs. That's a chain that's exclusively used for NFT trading. And you see people like the NFL, NBA issuing their assets, digital assets on that chain. And so there's a large breadth of interests and aspirations that developers have when they enter ecosystems. And I think naturally we'll just see them settle to the infrastructure that makes the most sense. And I think right now language is is one of those key factors. Yeah. I mean, obviously Rust bans further out than, than just blockchain specific computer programming. So it does have an advantage here and it's a popular framework. I hear you often in this conversation talk about the limitations of solidity. Is this sort of a theme that you are highlighting as a note of caution and sustainability in the long run? I mean, what, what do you see as the few? I mean, because a lot of smart contract developers are relying on as at least at the application level. You know, do you think that ultimately will change? You know, I don't know if it will necessarily change. I think solidity was constructed with a introductory idea in mind. I mean, they were introducing smart contracts for the first time. And so I've heard some developers compare Solidity to pseudocode, just because it is a little bit more descriptive in in the language. Now, that serves its function for sure, especially in giving developers an understanding of why it's structured like that, especially in the early days. Now, with Rust and with Move, we're seeing Move itself kind of be a framework for Rust so that such that it's applicable to blockchains specifically. And perhaps we see a movement towards that, a framework of already existing languages that make it as simple as possible to interact and develop blockchain structures that then don't have some of the security angles of attack. So one angle and for listeners to understand is we would not have seen the evolution of, like, if you are a modern day computer programmer, you can get to functionality much quicker because you don't have to essentially reinvent or recraft the lower level primitives that you're accessing, right? And so if you compare that with 25, 30 years ago, or even 15 years ago, there's been tremendous progress, right? A Python developer now very quickly abstract themselves from some of the complexities that lie beneath, right? And it's very common when I speak to younger developers that they really had no exposure to C or C++, even if it's at a, at a very theoretical level. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a function of how things have evolved. So when you talk about Move, trying to create a framework around Rust and some level, a blockchain-specific abstraction and a nomenclature around that, do you think the hype around Aptos is 
technical superiority is justified at this stage because obviously they're pioneering in some areas. It's still TBD as to whether the adoption follows. Yeah, and I think this is something that I struggled with quite a lot. And when I first started working in venture capital, and I think it's something that I still am very cognizant of, it's the separation of the technical superiority of a product versus the application and the need or demand for that product. And I've seen teams that I think are very superior in at the technical level fail to execute on the marketing and go-to-market level. And you can't have one without the other. Users don't care at the end of the day whether the base tech is marginally better than their competitor. They care about the function and the user experience. And I think Move as a framework seems to be very promising for scalability. I think Aptos's future depends ultimately on the strength of the marketing and the strength of the partnerships that they can create to onboard real use of their consensus. And without use for consensus, I mean, blockchains will just keep producing blocks and they may be empty. Makes sense. And I think it's a question that is really top of mind when we see such projects that are the beneficiaries of of a lot of coverage and certainly initial financial enthusiasm on the promise of this value. But maybe one thing that does come out of it is some of the work that they're doing in creating you know, a better programming environment, one that's more conducive to achieving higher levels of scalability, which they are demonstrating at the lower levels as well in the stack. Now, the elephant in the room, Ethereum, we're headed for a number of upgrades. And one of the things we've seen with the merge is probably one of the largest software upgrades in the history of technology and modern technology. And it was for many, it was flawless on some level. Do you remain confident that the Ethereum sort of ecosystem can maintain a a steep innovation curve whilst having to deal with technical debt, really, on a mass scale in ways that you can't just turn on a dime and flip a switch? You have to think through not only the shortcomings of your architecture, but how you're going to deploy it in a way that doesn't disrupt what is now a, a massive computing and, and financial ecosystem. Yeah. I think for people who work in the industry full-time like me, it's often easy for us to discount some of the progress that Ethereum has made in establishing itself as a leading layer one chain. I mean, a lot of the reason that enterprises have not adopted blockchain technology yet is because of risk, counterparty risk, whether it be for financial transactions, counterparty risk just in general when you're working on a decentralized or executing on a decentralized network. But what Ethereum has really succeeded in doing is maintaining its security for a execution layer. And that's something that's always been top of mind for them. And I think that's some of one of the reasons that we saw the merge get pushed back so many times. It wasn't that they didn't necessarily have the ability to do the merge earlier. It's the trade-off for doing it earlier than the other teams and potentially having a hiccup that results in a loss of billions of dollars is definitely a opportunity cost that smaller teams that are potentially more innovative at the base level just are afforded the luxury of. They don't have to worry about 
potentially ruining the position that they've created for themselves as a market leader, especially when it comes to security. And I would say my view on this is I continue to be very positive on Ethereum because of how well they've managed this, right? There's something that accrues to it being out there. And actually, you know, people refer to Bitcoin as being the true time-tested completely decentralized system, there is a philosophical debate as to some, you can poke holes in the Ethereum proof of stake migration as it relates to decentralization. However, there's something that accrues to a system being out there every day and showing the world that it is programmable today. You can implement it on it today. And there's a cohesive roadmap on a going forward basis. It also creates a baseline of what is possible within that architecture. And we look at the release schedule and addressing some of the scalability issues there, which again, I continue to be highly confident that they will achieve on the basis of what they've done in the past. I think it sets sort of, in some level, it is setting a standard for what is achievable out there. Because to your point, mostly like no one really on a large scale is using anything like Aptos right now. So for them to upgrade, make drastic changes is very easy. There's very little cost to that. It's very, very costly. And so there's, as an economist, I like to think about there's a rent that should accrue positively to Ethereum over time because of their entrenched position. And even though it takes them longer to achieve similar results, it gets compensated by the fact that there's a network effect, right? And if they're able to maintain there's a trade-off there between the steepness of their innovation curve and adoption, right, ultimately, that if they're able to maintain that trade-off, they can continue to monetize and create an ever more vibrant ecosystem, especially if they make it interoperable and, and a big driver of standards. So I know a topic that you've been really interested in you know, recently is financial interoperability, right? We've talked about some primitives that as we think about an environment where blockchains are talking to each other, interoperating. And we've seen a lot of issues around bridging between chains and security issues, implementation issues. And there are some projects out there that are trying to solve for a more native implementation of liquidity standards, even at the basic financial primitives, because we should remember that this is referred to as the internet of money, right? The financial aspects are very important. So can you talk to us a little bit about this? Yeah, I think capital efficiency has always been top of mind for economists, for researchers. I mean, I'm looking within blockchains for kind of improvements in efficiency across the board. And right now we have this idle liquidity approach whereby people deposit liquidity and it sits for most of the time idly within a pool that's then used as a counterparty to trade against. Now, we don't really see that a huge amount in other places, especially in the financial world, we see more of a party to counterparty interaction. And ultimately, that's going to be one of the more capital efficient solutions. And so as these interoperability standards develop, as the rate at which we can communicate between chains and between protocols improve, so then should the methods by which we interact and efficiently swap capital. And I think an example of this Let's look at Cosmos again. Oh, I guess before we look at Cosmos, let's look at something like Circle. It has a USDC product, stablecoin product, and they've been very 
deliberate in enabling their USDC token to be natively incorporated into every chain. Now, what this enables is the interoperability of USDC without the security risks of having honeypots associated with bridging. You don't need to now lock your tokens and mint them on the other chain. You can just simply burn and mint between any chains. And this introduces a level of security that lock and mint just doesn't have. But the communication protocols go beyond just circle. I mean, if we're now going back to IBC, let's take two protocols, someone like Osmosis and Mars Protocol that just launched. They, they're talking about something called liquidity outposts, whereby you can have liquidity on one chain and conduct a swap using that liquidity without having to bridge to the chain osmosis where the swap will actually occur. Now, again, it goes back to the abstraction that we were talking about earlier. The whole improvement in user experience comes from the abstraction away of that liquidity transfer swap and then ultimately liquidity transfer back. And I think that's something that I'm looking out for and cognizant of when looking at projects. It's just kind of the use of their capital and the efficiency at which they're designing interactions. Yeah, I mean, on some level, if we are talking about a programmable internet of money, a lot of these things should really be native and accessible as part of the SDK, as the toolkit, right? If you're building a business, and we've seen this in the Web2 world that interfaces with financial services and payment rails and Mint and Played and all these types of API-driven environments that are now thought as essential building blocks that no one really spends a lot of time thinking about. It's like if you're building a business that requires some of these interfaces, whether it's accessing bank accounts, whether it's transferring money in the fiat world, things like that, that there's just ways you do this out there and you don't have to go out and rebuild it, right? I see parallels also in, in more institutional financial services where a lot of, yeah, I don't necessarily want to call them primitives, but baseline brokerage type services, settlement functions are now being abstracted through APIs because you have vendors that have stepped in. And obviously there is counterparty risk when you sign an agreement for for outsourcing some of those capabilities. And the beauty of decentralization is we should be able to solve for that, right? And so if we had some of this financial interoperability, you know, from a financial primitive standpoint, whether it's trading, lending, settlement, payment, I think we should get to a point where these are native functions that a developer has access to as part of their API toolkit on the blockchain. Right. And it's not necessarily just like messaging or communication that enables this interoperability. I think it's also the set standards that we've agreed to. And something like identity plays a huge part in that. When we're looking at the hesitance of institutional finance to move onto blockchain environments, a lot of it is that hesitancy because there's no way to validate the counterparty risk that they're actually taking on. Now, if identity services were incorporated and you could conduct a zero-knowledge proof for the collateral or prior on-chain financial behavior of a counterparty, that starts to introduce methods by which traditional institutions, as we know them as being Web2, can validate and overcome some of the challenges that they're facing from an operational standpoint in engaging with this technology. 
Yeah. And on some level, I mean, I almost view this as a common access good. I mean, using your terminology, I think those are baseline functionalities, to your point, identity and everything that ties into it. And again, people fall into different camps, but when you see Avalanche building KYC into the chain, there's a number of initiatives there trying to go in in that direction and, and try to encourage adoption in that sense. As an investor, and as we draw near to the end of this very rich and exciting conversation, talk to us about a few projects that you're particularly excited about in the field. And of course, you canvass the land, but you must have your preferences and you must have your bets. Yeah. Well, while I'm, I can't really name them at this stage because a lot of them ongoing conversations, there's a project that I'm really excited about that's utilizing state proofs, which are essentially just proofs of the state of a given contract or asset, contract or wallet on one chain and conserve that proof of the state to another using something like a traditional API. Now that enables what I call, or what I like to think of as fetching of data as opposed to active relaying and passing of data. When we've got something that's as frequent as state changes across chains, I don't think it's necessarily most efficient to be broadcasting them out, especially when you don't know if anyone's going to be ingesting it on the other end, compared to fetching it or making it available to be fetched at any given time by any user. And the the benefit of it is that because you're conducting it on the chain at which you're trying to receive the state of, it becomes a a one-to-n transaction as opposed to a one-to-one transaction. Many users can ingest the same data, and so the cost remains stable at the data construction level. Makes sense. So that's very interesting. And I'm just going through the list of things that I would still want to cover here. And maybe I'm just going to throw this out there, but we should have an ongoing podcast where we talk about innovation and some of the more specifics covering blockchain infrastructure, because it's certainly been incredibly fascinating to have you as a guest. It's been enlightening to me to keep learning. And I know in our conversations, I always learn many, many things every time we chat and we talk. So I appreciate you coming and sharing and imparting with your knowledge here and spending some time with us. Likewise, I always thoroughly enjoy our conversations, Maxime, and would be happy to be a part of it. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.